Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Matt Midkiff, and we're discussing a variety of pet peeves in the physical therapy realm. So things that we feel are far too common that really just kind of irritate us or grind our gears or just don't sit 100% right with us. And as we mentioned throughout this podcast, this is not to bash on the physical therapy field by any means. We're both physical therapists ourselves. Instead, this is a way to kind of shed light on things that we feel that could be better and start the discussion and the dialogue of how we can improve our profession and get things moving forward in a positive way. I hope you guys enjoy the show and I'm excited to hear your feedback on this one. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Super excited to have you on today, man. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here too. So for people who aren't familiar with you and everything you're doing over in Arizona there, would you mind filling them in about you a little bit? Yeah, I work at Foothill Sports Medicine. I'm an owner director in our uh, Gilbert Mesa location, which is East Valley. Uh, We have a six PT clinic uh, that specializes in orthopedics and sports medicine. We see a lot of uh, post-operative patients, particularly uh, ACL reconstructions, rotator cuff repairs, ankle reconstructions. Um, I coach competitive youth soccer. I'm one of the coaching directors at Arizona Arsenal uh, FC here in the East Valley, and uh, we do the sports medicine for the soccer club. So that's a, a big part of our business and a fun part for me because I get to work with the athletes, their, their family members, parents, and siblings, and uh, develop a a great uh, niche in that area in order to uh, rehab them and get them back playing uh, safely and and happily. Yeah, that's incredible, man. And you're certainly doing great stuff out there. And one of the things that I'm surprised you didn't mention is you practice what you preach. And I've noticed not a whole lot of people do that, right? You are very fit and in shape and strong. And it amazed me when I kind of got out in the world practicing physical therapy, how few people actually practice what they preach right we should be promoting exercise and stuff and you know not everyone does yeah sure you know for for me um i've always been told to to look the part act the part and be the part and i Mm -hmm. take that very seriously my staff does as well and and um the majority of our staff are former college athletes at the very least um all kinds of different fields we've we've had a lot of soccer players come through but we have former dance professional and um and those that are interested in, in um, more higher level recreational sports at this point in time. But for me, if you're not engaged in the fitness industry and you're, you're working as a sports medicine PT, it's tough to stand in front of a parent of a 16-year-old football player, a 18-year-old soccer player with aspirations to play in college and say, hey, I'm, I'm the person that's going to rehab you and get you back to where you want to be. For me, first impressions are huge. Um, I want to uh, look and act a, a certain way that people look at me and go, Hey, that, that is the person that's going to be able to help m- me, my kid, uh, the athlete that plays on my team. And, um, and in our industry, you know, you, you don't have to look like a professional bodybuilder, but I do think you need to be someone that's promoting health and fitness. Um, and, and we do a lot of manual work and exercise demonstration. Honestly, I don't know how you do unless you have, some degree of fitness and athleticism um, as part of your normal lifestyle. So uh, 
that's an important thing for me. I think that is something that is differentiating. And, and I totally agree. We've, we've all been to con ed courses that are sports medicine based, and um, it doesn't look like an athletic group of people that are listening to the speakers talk or the orthopods talking. And, um, and I think our industry to, to come to a higher level as more and more people recognize that that exercise prescription is one of the most important, if not the most important thing that we do. Uh, you know, our, our PTs need to be exercising and bringing that into their practice. Yeah, hundred percent, man. I could not agree more. I mean, it's kind of like thinking, you know, if you go to the cardiologist and that cardiologist tells you, Hey, you should probably stop smoking. It's bad for your heart, bad for your lungs, but that doctor smokes a pack a day. Are you going to listen to their advice or are you going to just keep on keeping on? And I like how you brought up too. everyone in your clinic has some kind of exercise or sports background, but they're a little bit different, right? And exercise itself looks yeah. different for everyone. You don't have to all go to the gym and do the same thing. Maybe exercise is, hey, you go hiking and you go through the mountains of Arizona. Or maybe maybe you run, maybe you uh, swim, bike, lift weights, whatever it is, yoga. Just do something. Just be active yeah. in some capacity. Again, it looks different for everyone. But I think that we are not promoting movement enough right now. And instead, we're focusing so much on exclusion. So don't do this. Yeah. It's bad for you. Don't do that. It's bad for you. Yeah. And, and honestly, in my practice, uh, one of the the reasons patients like to come and doctors like to send is, is we're the opposite of that. We're trying to figure out uh, how they can keep doing what they love to do uh, without passive rest. And um, telling a runner that loves to run distance that they can't run, telling a cyclist they can't cycle, um, even with our soccer players, there's, there may be a period of time they can't play, but the more that we make rehab look like soccer, uh, the more engaged they are and the more they're likely to buy into our program. So um, not doing things and passively resting is, is a quick way to not get better when you try to go back and do what you love to do. So you mean just putting your feet up and resting and throwing some ice on your knee or something that's not actually going to change anything or get you better? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, you know, um, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I started practicing and, and saw uh, what was out there and there was a lot of what we called hum therapy, which was hot packs, ultrasound and massage. And, um, and that's still out there. We, we see it all over the place. And, and some patients actually might even want that. But uh, uh, we have to educate them that that's definitely not the way that they're going to have any kind of lasting change and, and really any kind of temporary change at all. Right, right. And I think people want it because it tends to feel good, right? We throw a hot pack or a cold pack on someone and they feel better afterwards. Or, you know, right. we put an E-STEM unit on someone and it feels okay. It knocks the pain down. Sure. But- I can't really tell you what that's doing to address the root cause of your issue, really. Yeah, it's not doing anything to, to address the root cause. Uh, there, you know, it's killing time for hot packs and cold packs. Is probably uh, just destroying the table that you're uh, that you have that <laughs> nice pleather on. I, you know, honestly, I haven't had a hydroculator in my clinic for 15 years, so I don't, I don't even remember what one looks like, but. Uh, um, you know, at the end of the day, people have to move and, and in order to get better, they have to correct uh, dysfunctional movement. Um, and without that, no matter what else you do, um, they're not going to get better. And you know it as well as anyone as a clinic owner. 
I mean, hydroculators, they probably cost what, two, three grand just to bring one of those in. And you've got the bill to run that thing electrically. And it brings in no revenue to the clinic. You can't bill for it. So from a business standpoint, would you ever really do anything that costs money but gives you no return on your investment? Really? No, but so many people do because, like you said, just like the, the, the feel effect. But I, I'll tell you the, the money part, and I'm serious about the tables. Uh, they destroy tables, and uh, they're not expensive to get uh, resurfaced uh, with leather and pleather. And, and honestly, if you take physical therapy and the amount of time that your patients are in the clinic, and that's a cost, right? And um, just, just like if uh, uh, you were eating in a restaurant at a table – there's a cost to that. And uh, for the restaurant, the restaurant wants the best possible service and the most customer uh, satisfaction. And then they want to turn over the table so that the next customer can come in and have the same great experience. Well, you know, if you're going to put someone on a hot pack for 15, 20 minutes, multiply that by the number of people you see in a week and the amount of extra time they're in and taking away from the next person that could be receiving actual valuable service. And, uh, and you can do the math on how much money you lose over the course of uh, of a month. And yeah, it's a definitely, lot. definitely. And I don't know how clinics keep the doors open doing that, honestly. And I mean, as we're talking, it seems like there's really not a whole lot of benefit to passive things. Now, there's some passive things that actually work sure. really well. And that tends to be more the manual therapy route. Again, mm-hmm. I can't tell you what ultrasound is doing for you, but I can tell you what a joint glide does, like a joint mobilization or a joint manipulation. Sure. We can see yeah. that. However, too much of anything can be bad for you. I think that there's a real good, or there should be a real strong dose response relationship with everything we do, right? If we don't do enough, we don't get any effect or any benefit. But if we do too much, it starts to be bad. I think manual therapy is an area that we typically see that done. And, you know, I don't want to just pin Kairos for this. I've seen physical therapists that build three units of manual. And it's like, what are you doing by adjusting, like manipulating someone's spine and then mobilizing it over and over and over again, and then doing soft tissue on it and then doing myofascial on it for 40 minutes? Like, what is that actually? Yeah. And, and again, from a effectiveness standpoint, um, any kind of manual therapy is creating some sort of localized trauma. And a lot of why we do different manual therapy techniques, whether it's like an ASTEM Graston type technique or dry needling or, or even a, a grade five um, on a spine, you know, part of that is creating an inflammatory response. And if, if done for too long, you know, how, how long is it going to take for them to recover from that inflammatory response? Um, Mulligan's an Australian manual therapist and he pretty much says if you can uh get something moving better in about 30 reps uh then do something else or do it better and um and and really increasing mobility through manual therapy um without uh creating stability to the new mobility is is dangerous you you give a shoulder more motion um then you better have them use that motion and get stronger or else they're going to lose the motion one and they're going to put themselves in ranges that that may be um, disadvantageous for them and, and result in injury. So, um, you know, I think if we're going to overdo uh, anything in our clinics, it's going to be the, the exercise portion. Um, and, and there is a low dose response to that as well. But um, but if you're working with higher level athletes, you know, can we in our clinic manip- uh, uh, 
can we mirror mimic uh, the demands their sport has to have in order to get them back to their desired sport at a, at a high level and, and a desired fitness level. So um, in our clinic, if we're going to do anything a little bit too much is probably the exercise load rather than the manual therapy load. Once we create mobility, let's go use that mobility, have fun with it and get them uh, stronger and more stable. Yeah. I could not agree more. As you said, you have to have that good mobility and stability relation. I would rather have patients come back in and say, look, you did too much exercise last time. Then, hey, you just stretched me way too much. And you mentioning that you treat soccer players a lot and you're a soccer coach. <clears throat> I don't know if it's just me, but I've seen a lot of soccer players lately. And the amount of high school age girls that I can take and literally internally rotate their hip until their foot is like perpendicular to their leg. Like I'm literally sure. talking 60, 70, 80, 90 degrees of yeah. IR. And then like, yeah. you know, they struggle to do five reps of a sideline hip abduction. To me, that's a big red flag and a big concern. I'm seeing yeah. a lot of that lately. I don't know about you. Yeah. And, and frontal plane weakness for soccer players is, is, uh, is always an issue, especially for females, but you'll see it in young males as well. Um, I always kind of tell my staff, if you don't know where to go uh, for a young female athlete, go to frontal playing glute, go to transverse playing glute and see what you find, because um, you'll probably find weakness and that'll be a good area to start. So you get that, that girl with that diagnosis that has a huge amount of internal rotation. They have glute need, frontal plane weakness, and, um, and they have patellofemoral pain or head pain. And, uh, you know, they spend 15 minutes in in treatment, stretching their internal rotators and hamstrings, uh, because it must be hamstring tightness that caused patellofemoral pain. So, you know, <laughs> uh, the, it's gotta be right. It's gotta be hamstring tightness, even though they can put their foot back to the floor behind their head. Um, so, you know, again, from a clinician standpoint, can we, can we train our staff and can we be better at looking at where those real deficits are and work on them rather than, um, just kind of go through the, my knee hurts because my, my hamstrings are tight. My quads are weak. And as you mentioned before, customizing and individualizing that treatment approach to that athlete's sport demands, because a lot of places I've seen, they use very cookie cutter, basic exercise. So if you have knee pain, you're getting quad sets, you're getting straight leg raises, you're getting sideline clamshells, all these basic things. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you're 16 years old, or you're 80 years old, you're doing yeah. those exercises, yeah. period. Can, and I swear can, they never progressed. Can can we please stop doing quad sets and straight leg raises after the first visit? Like once <laughs> they're taught, can we can we just have them do it at home and, and use the time in the clinic for something that's a little bit more skilled um, treatment? And, and uh, but yeah, you do see that all the time. You see those, you know, open chain, um, non-weight bearing exercises be the first visit, and you be the eighth visit. And, uh, and, and again, you wonder why the, the knee still hurts because they haven't had enough load and <laughs> they're actually not getting stronger. Um, not bad exercises in and of themselves, but definitely ones that after the first visit or so, patient can do at home and uh, you can use that time for, for things that are more challenging and skilled and interactive with them. Right, right. And I think that's where some people kind of lose this connection of like, it's okay if every treatment session looks a little bit different and it's okay to actually mm -hmm. phase your physical therapy days kind of like you would at the gym right so sure. say you've got a post-op acl patient well if they're say three four five months mm -hmm. out and they just need to be building strength 
they're still coming to you three days a week. Why not do yeah. an anterior chain and a posterior chain day? Why not? You know, we don't yeah. have to just stick with, well, these are the exercises on the flow sheet. We're going to do them over and over and over again. We can change it day to day and see if, you know, hey, we tried standing clamshells this time and we found some balance deficits. Now we're going to do more standing stabilization stuff today. We're going to do single leg RDL and we're going to do, you know, runner lunge, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the next day we're going to hit more posterior chain because we don't have enough hamstring strength. Like it's okay to mix it up like that instead of just trying to blend, you know, five different regions all together in one treatment day. Yeah, hundred percent. And whether it's an anterior chain, posterior chain day, or um, frontal plane day, uh, transverse plane day, you can mix more of an agility power day with a strength day and a endurance day, just like you you may in your own um, strength training uh, program. And uh, for those longer term patients, you should have uh, the typical macro, uh, meso and micro cycles within their training where they're developing a strength base, going through a period of, um, uh, power exercises, doing a period of, um, endurance activities and then recycling again, um, depending on how they're progressing, how they're doing. Um, to your point too, you, you get that patient that comes in one day and, uh, you know, their, their knee hurts and maybe a little swollen. They ran a little bit too much and, and, and so that becomes a great, great day to do a posterior chain day because there's going to be less anterior strength um, and the value of working hamstring glutes, abductors, adductors are, are huge for those athletes. So, um, you know, I, I kind of train our staff if, if someone's been doing something the same way for three sessions in a row and it's not a specific mobility exercise, it's a strength or balance exercise, then we need to change it. Um, you know, some exceptions with your older population, but with your younger population, they're probably going to get bored. I'm definitely going to get bored watching them do the same things. And that's where you lose a little patient compliance because they, they're not being progressed. They feel like they can start doing it at home. They don't need you. And, um, and you should be delivering a service that makes them go, Hey, uh, it's fun to be here. I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm getting, um, pushed like I would by my coach or, you know, out in the real world. And, um, and it's kind of different every week. And, and that's when I think you get more patient engagement and buy-in. And I think their body responds better too. Well, that, and it just opens up a whole new world of creativity for you, right? Instead of yeah. just doing the same stuff you've always done, you can now start thinking outside the box. And one of the things you said that I really liked was just overall having a purpose for every session and setting a goal like, okay, today we're going to do this. And I don't care what diagnosis you're working with or what patient population you're working with. Like even if it's a post-op knee replacement, like I know the first week, my goal is we're going to get extension range of motion back. ACLs, post-op knee, right? So if I have an ACL first week, maybe first two weeks, I want full range extension as quickly as possible. So that's mm -hmm. my goal every session, knee extension range of motion. And then, you know, maybe my goal later down the line becomes today I want to focus on single leg balance through this and through that, like just having a purpose for every action you do, because when you have purpose for every action, every action has a result instead of just, well, I've got to give them this to fill five more minutes and just take up time. Yeah. And that's, that's where the important part becomes knowing their purpose of being in rehab, because if you can make your purpose, their purpose, um, that's when, 
again, you get that great buy-in and they'll work harder and they'll get more out of it. So it may be that 60 year old lady after total knee that um, wants to be able to walk her dog down the street. So you create, you know, dynamic gate activities where she's having to be pulled or, or pull on or carry something that's unweighted on one side so that it mimics what she has to do in real life. It's utilizing the equipment that you have in the gym to, uh, in your PT gym in order to, to mimic what that person has to do in real life. Um, merging uh, what you want to get out of the session with what they want to do and making it look as close to that, making it smell like that, breathe like that um, goes a long way towards um, getting more motivation into the rehab and getting a better outcome. And I'm sure that you don't need any fancy equipment at all to make that happen, right? You can just get by with TheraBand and ankle weights, right? You know what? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, I do think, um, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't want to go in a clinic that has no equipment. Um, I, I wouldn't want to go in a clinic. I, I wouldn't want to go to into a clinic that has a million machines where I have to sit in them and do something. So uh, for me, uh, it's utilizing equipment that um, you can uh, use for dynamic motion um, that will create increased uh, neuromuscular challenges that allows them to move and allows their body to move the way they have to in everyday life. Um, so we have some cool toys, uh, probably a few more toys I'd love if the finances were there, but uh, um, you know, it, it is more than TheraBand and, and free weights. Uh, for me, cable crosses are awesome uh, where you have a multi-height cable machines. Um, we've created slosh pipes for uh, different neuromuscular challenges, unweighted, unstable uh, movement, um, vaso straps that, um, that you wrap yourself in and do different reaches, core challenges, different balance devices. Um, I've been... Uh, using restricted blood flow therapy in our clinic for the last, gosh, eight years, um, certified by Owens Recovery Science. And, uh, and I think that is a, a great um, active modality um, for the population that we work with, um, which, I mean, honestly, is everything from our older total knees to our, our younger ACLs and ankle rehabs. I, I think uh, uh, even though that's not the cheapest equipment in the world, it, it serves a great purpose in, in rehab. So I, I think as a clinician, you need to be smart in what you invest your money in, but you want to create an environment where everyone from, you know, police officers, firefighters, uh, professional football players, young athletes all have uh, what they need to in order to be successful. We have squat racks, uh, um, uh, trap bars, all, all kinds of heavier stuff because they're going to go through a period that they need heavier loading and uh, we need to be able to provide that and see them do it. Um, so to answer your question, it's more than that. But uh, <laughs> I also I also don't want uh, I don't I, I've worked in clinics where uh, everyone has to sit down and and do lat rows at a machine and, you know, everything's these sitting Cybex machines, which which I think is fine in a gym setting, but in a rehab facility, the more they can be dynamic, I think the better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because unfortunately, that seated machine doesn't ever really match real life. And while it's great to have strong quads in a open chain leg extension or be able to perform really well on an isokinetic, 
I want to see how the quads work in more of a close chain thing. So maybe sure. you have strong yeah. quads, but you know, you can't do a single leg squat eccentrically and control it. And that tells me a lot more about your functional ability. And, you know, if you're going to return to see me after I, you know, finish up with you with feet, with PT, than your strength on an open chain leg extension, which that's been a big thing for me is just making sure the things that I do not only work in the short term, but after that patient leaves and they're done because mm -hmm. eventually patients move back to life, making sure that everything I did sticks and lasts with them for months down the line, because as much yeah. as I like my patients, I don't want to see them come back in the clinic with another problem. Yeah. And you definitely don't want to see them come back for the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of joy when they refer friends and, and relatives, but you want that person to go and be healthy and have a good foundation of, of things they can do to stay healthy. I couldn't have said it any better. And I think it comes back to, to like your overall initial exam eval assessment. Like, you know, you want to look at as much as you can on that person to catch those things as early as possible. So mm -hmm. I had two hip and knee evals today and on both of them, I looked at core and I looked at the ankle in addition to the hip and the knee, because I feel like core stability is closely linked with the hip. I think that mm -hmm. ankle is closely linked with the knee. So I kind of sure. want to look at the whole picture, right? Yeah. And in school, they pretty much train you to look one joint above and one joint below. Um, and, but it is more than that. And, and you need to, you know, look at what they may have in an open chain on the table, but get them on their feet and go through a functional exam, whether that's FMS or Gary Gray based or whatever else you want to use, just watch them do stuff. Um, Cause that, and watch them do stuff going to the right, watch them do stuff going to the left. And, uh, and then the picture should become clear of how they're successful, what things they're struggling at. Um, uh, are they side dominant? Um, and you're looking at the whole chain from, uh, from ankle to cervical spine, really, and seeing what jumps out. Um, when we do gait assessments, you may not see anything, but you're looking for those outliers and asymmetries. When you do squat tests, same thing. Like, what is jumping out? How's the ankle dorsiflexing? Um, are they leaning to one side? How's their spine look? Are they bending forward? Like all that kind of stuff. You're you're evaluating, and it's important for us to remember too that you do the evaluation and then you start them on the exercise program. And that still becomes more of the evaluation. You're going to see more as you get them into to doing dynamic activities. And you may see that, whoa, they struggle a lot more on the right side doing a, a lateral step down, especially when they put their arms overhead than they do on the left side. So what, what I, what may have I missed in the evaluation then I need to go back and look and see where that's coming from. So um, every exercise they do, uh, becomes part of your evaluation, both in the first session and moving forward. Um, Gary Gray uses the phrase of uh, the exercise um, or the test becomes the exercise and the exercise becomes the test. So when we do an assessment, especially a dynamic one, and they're not very good at it, can we craft exercises to make them better um, and come back and test it again? And uh, the things they struggle with um, from an exercise standpoint, we always want to retest and make sure they got better by what we prescribed for them. Right. And I would say that you would or should be able to fill out, like when you have to do a progress note or a recertification, I would imagine you should be able to fill out most of that stuff if you're watching your patient doing their exercises and progressing. You know, if I can't look at someone and say, 
look, their hips are definitely stronger now, or their knees are definitely stronger now before I start doing like an isometric test or with a dynamometer, then I'm probably doing something wrong myself. Right. Yeah. And, and again, like so many of my assessments come back to what they do exercise wise and, and how successful they are compared to the other side, how successful they are compared to the eval date or the week before. Um, and if, uh, and if you look at, look at it that way, then documentation, uh, becomes a lot easier uh, to make assessments of progress. I know you have a lot more experience in the PT realm than I do, and you've probably had students come and go and all. What has been some of the things that you've noticed when you're working with other PTs or students or new grads, things that you notice they're doing that you're like, look, that's that's probably not going to fare well for you in the long run, or that's something you should probably change if you want to continue to succeed in patient with patients. Yeah, you know what? Um, that's a great question. Uh, so within within our clinic, we've been blessed that everyone has that like mindedness. Uh, once we go kind of through the hiring process, a lot of my PTs are former students um, that were rock stars as students, and uh, and whether it was right out of school or or down the line, just became a great person to hire. Um, you know, I I would say this. I I would say like looking at things that I don't think are um, effective in the PT world or some of the stuff we've already talked about. It's, it's, it's passive manual therapy with not enough exercise. It's, it's, uh, it's exercise load that isn't sufficient enough to affect a change. Um, it's not testing on a regular basis um, in order to document change. So if you are working with a, anything from an ankle sprain to a, um, a meniscectomy to ACL rehab? Are you doing monthly testing or every two or three weeks where you've got a certain go-to test that, that show that, hey, this person is, um, is or isn't making progress? Because um, if you don't test frequently enough, then uh, you don't progress as quickly as you should to get the right outcome. And, and ultimately it comes down to, uh, you know, the thing about students is they really don't have an idea how quickly they should progress. I mean, that's why they're students. They haven't seen people from start to finish. That's normal. That's why they're in the clinic. Um, I've had a few that have a great exercise background and, and, and they have a much better idea in that. Um, but I think the greatest, uh, the greatest leap that someone's going to make in their first couple of years of being a PT is um, it's not just doing the evaluation and getting it right. Um, and you'll get better at that and you'll get a better starting point. If you have a good starting point, really helps you build their plan of care. Uh, but it's figuring out like, if you're at, if you're at point A, um, how quickly can I get to, to point B? Um, and how fast can I progress things um, that I'm not gonna hurt them but going as quickly as I can to get the best possible outcome. So um, typically your students go and your young PTs go one of two ways. They progress too quickly. People get hurt. Um, they progress so slow because they're scared or timid, um, which is probably more the norm and probably the better side to fall onto. But uh, uh, it just takes the patient longer to get better and they get frustrated. Um, the other thing that gets me for for any young PT that's not going to pour uh, time into uh, patients. Um, 
I've had students, even recent students that, you know, we have all these cool people in the clinic and, you know, they'll, they'll talk to the patient, um, get their subjective and then come over to where I'm at and just kind of hang out rather than just pour into that patient, um, you know, be involved in, you know, the start, the middle, their, their rehab program. They, they're not as interested in, uh, and getting the most or, or giving the most for that patient in that given day. And those are the, those are the patients, you know, PT students that, that I wouldn't hire um, because they don't get that, you know, the, our job is to help the patients create a great experience, get great outcomes. Um, the job isn't there. Um, the job isn't for you. The job is for them. And, and the students that get the job is for the patients and for them are the ones that are going to pour into them and try to squeeze every second uh, out of every day, whether it's mentorship um, as a PT intern or it's mentorship in your first few years as a PT. Um, so aggressive exercise prescription that is uh, spot on from start to finish that progresses people as quickly as they can and just being totally invested in that person um, with all the time that you have uh, with them in the clinic, I think are the two big things that, that the good students differentiate themselves from the, the weaker students. And those are things that they never really hit on in programs, I don't think, at least in my own experience and yeah. from the friends that I know, you know, they never yeah. really hit on the soft skills of communication and how much time you should spend talking to your patient and all that other stuff, I don't think. Yeah, they don't at all. Um, one, uh, hopefully I can get this right, but one uh, analogy that strikes me is, uh, was told to, told to me by a local doc, Anika Shabra, who worked with James Andrews. James Andrews out of Birmingham is one of the ortho docs to the pro athletes, to the stars over the last 20 years. It's a pretty big name out there. Um, but he said in his Southern accent, like to be good in sports medicine, you got to have three things. One, you got to be lackable because uh, you ain't doing brain surgery. You ain't doing heart surgeries. So if people don't lack you, they're not going to come back and see you. Number two, you got to be accessible because people can't get in to see you. Um, they're going to go see somebody else. And three, you got to have some level of skill. Um, we hope it's a high level of skill. Uh, but if you ain't likable and you ain't accessible, you don't get a chance to show that you got some level of skill. So um, in our world, like connecting with that patient, uh, creating a relationship that they buy into you, investing time in them listening to them, being an active listener, making sure you know what they want out of rehab allows you to have time to use your skill set to help them and get better. And if you, if they show that, if you show to them that you're not as interested as you should be in them, then they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And unfortunately yeah. in today's day and age, man, there's competition everywhere, right? I don't care yeah. if you work yeah, at sure. a small clinic, a large clinic, wherever, you know, that patient has five, maybe even 10 other options within a few minutes drive of your clinic, especially if you're in yeah. a big area like Phoenix. So if you yeah. want to grow and expand your clinic, if you want to really make a mark on the area as a clinician, I would imagine you really have to own your patients and you have to go a little bit above and beyond at times, because if you don't, someone else is going to every time. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I don't honestly, 
you know, I've always looked at businesses this way and the business that I run is my concern is within our doors and what we can control and what we can do. So uh, our core values is creating a great experience, um, getting great patient outcomes and doing that with a staff that shows good teamwork. Um, and, in, and our, the attributes I want from my staff that I stole from a book called The Ideal Team Player by Patrick Lencioni is we want our PTs and staff to be humble, treat everyone with equal respect, hungry, great work ethic, do whatever needs to be to help patients and staff and smart, um, acts in a way, uh, talks in a way that doesn't create more work or issues for me or for them. Um, and we found with the, merging those together, if we take care of that, um, that's all we can do to create the best possible environment for our patients uh, within the scope of our business. Um, and if we don't do that, then those 10 PT clinics that are right down the door are going to, or right down the road are going to capitalize in that. And we're going to lose a lot of business for it. And when you start to see people that don't live up to those core values, um, suddenly your numbers go down and your business goes down. Uh, when you have a group of people that is, uh, that are always switched on, um, to get better and, and to pour love into your patients, then it doesn't become an issue. Yeah, yeah. You're constantly doing what I like to call a SWOT analysis. I think that's the business term. You're analyzing your own strengths and weaknesses, but you're also looking out for opportunities and threats. And sure, you can do that in the business sense, but I think you can do it in the rehab sense as well. So you look at your plan of care for that patient mm -hmm. and you say, look, what is it that I'm doing really well right now? And what is it that this patient is not doing well with? What is it that I've missed? What are the missing keys to this puzzle, missing pieces to the puzzle. And then you start looking for opportunities to, you know, improve on those, but you also look for the threats, the things that, Hey, if I do this, maybe it's too early for that, or maybe it's too risky for that patient right now. Mm -hmm. And if you're constantly doing that and thinking like that, I'd imagine you become a much better clinician than someone who, again, you know, three sets of 10, these exercises, you're going to do them every mm -hmm. time you see me. I can't tell you yeah. why it's three sets of 10. I can't tell you why it's these exercises, but that's just what we do. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and we actually, those SWOT analysis, we we do for our business at the start of each year. Um, and we've done them over the last several years. So I think they're great. It's great to individualize them to, to patients because um, uh, it really is... <laughs> okay and a good idea to, to, to have a reason for what you're doing with your patients. And I think we'd both agree that uh, that's not always the case, but um, you should look at each situation as um, why am I doing this and what do I hope the outcome to be in order to, to help that person get the best possible result. And if you always circle back, um, that brings into it the threat part of, you know, if I do too much, too little, is this person in a safe environment? Um, then uh, you, you you help to manage the, the threat part to make sure that, again, you're doing the greatest good and not going to do any harm with them. Right, right. And you're never going to account for every factor and every variable. But if you're at least yeah. thinking about it, you're more likely to be prepared for when things do come up. And yeah. as we're talking, you know, we're both physical therapists. And I don't think either of us want to paint PT in a bad light i think that great physical therapy is one of the best things for nearly every patient or everyone out there it's just one of those things that there's a difference between good pt and great pt and you can apply that to any setting chiropractics personal trainers business yeah. uh, marketing whatever 
uh, even athletes, right? There's a difference between Derek Jeter as a shortstop and then your minor league baseball shortstop, whoever he is, right? There's a difference between the good ones and the great ones. And if you want to be a great physical therapist and you want to up your game, up your level and really go above and beyond, these are the things that you kind of have to make part of your daily practice. Yeah, you do. And, um, you know, hopefully everyone wants to be great at what they do. They want to be the Derek Jeter uh, of their field, whether it's PT, PA or ortho. Um, That's kind of how I'm wired. I want to be really, really good at what I do and reflective when things aren't going well and how I could I can make it better. And all those little extra things that you can do to learn and and uh, and learn from other people around you and and again, listen with your patients and see what they need and, and be able to uh, do a good assessment, evaluate how they're doing and progress it and make it better. I, those are all the things that, you know, honestly aren't the norm in our field that need to become more the norm. Right. And having conversations, even like we are right now, like, you know, earlier you mentioned like, Hey, you know, I don't mind when patients do the same exercises for say three sessions in a row. Well, someone else might say, you know, I'd rather go five or six. Well, that's the kind of stuff that we can start having conversations about and debating about and learning from one another instead of just this is the way it's done, period. Like, I think it's essential to keep an open mind about pretty much everything and constantly be learning new things from others instead of just closing yourself off to everything. Yeah. And the starting point, like you said, is conversation. The starting point is having a framework and guidelines. Um you know, I think all of us at this point, even orthos would agree that, you know, you could have an ortho at Stedman Job and and they would say, hey, you know, the protocol I wrote for this uh, UCL repair is probably not going to be the best for every single person. You know, that's my guidelines. These are the timeframes that tissue heals. This is a framework to go by. But, you know, I'm trusting the PT um, to communicate with me and, and make sure that things are, uh, uh, adjusted for that individual person. So, uh, you want to create the framework. That's why protocols are, are, um, beneficial for people that don't have that framework, um, of knowing how tissue heals and, and how things can be progressed. Uh, but again, our cr- clinical reasoning skills should allow us to adjust based on that person. Um, you know, the important thing for me in, in those kind of situations is, you know, if, if you as one of my staff PTs came to me and said, Hey, you know, I've done this exercise for three times in a row, but that person is still challenged by it. Um, they're not quite there. They haven't mastered it. Um, I want to do it a couple more times. Um, you've given me a great reason, go for it, do it. Um, you know, the, the, the problem comes in when, when, uh, you look at a flow sheet, you know, two months into a treatment program and you see absolutely the same exercise done uh, for a 20 year old um, for the last uh, 12 sessions in a row with no progression at all without the provider recognizing that may not be the best way to do it. Um, It may be as long as he recognizes that this is exactly what I need that person to do. And these are the reasons for it, Uh, but there needs to be a a reason for it. Yeah. I could not agree anymore, Matt. As we start to wrap up here, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything that you really want to touch on that we didn't hit yet? Yeah, for me, I, you know, I just think I have a hunger for our profession to get better. I have a hunger for 
us in the orthopedic and sports medicine profession to have more conversations, to push each other, um, challenge each other in a positive way, not in a uh, insulting or aggressively adversarial way, but challenge each other to be better, um, to be a little bit more research-based, uh, to have a better grasp of exercise progression in the exercise physiology world, kinesiology world, to bring our schooling a little bit more um, back into our treatment um, value. I think if we look at even um, the chiropractic field, they're, they're now attempting to, to function more as PTs. Um, one, because insurances like to reimburse for exercise and things that are corrective. Um, but because they also see the value that, hey, putting someone on a table and cracking their back and seeing them home, maybe not help them get better or that person's not going to come back as frequently as if I'm working with them and giving them corrective exercise. So, um, you know, I, I challenge us in the field to, to help each other in a very positive light uh, to, um, uh, to, to have patients have a great experience, great outcomes and be pushed um, to get the most out of their rehab sessions every single time they walk into the door. Um, the better everyone is, the better our field gets, the better name we get, the more insurances are going to reimburse us because the outcomes will be better. Um, less second surgeries, less second injuries, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and that only helps us. That helps me. That helps you even more because you're going to have another 15 years or so to practice than I will, hopefully. Um but, uh, you know, let's all let's all have the mindset of we're trying to help each other and make the field better. We're not demeaning any other PTs, even those ones that may still be doing hot pack, straight leg raises, quad sets. You know, can we can we get those people to do more interactive, active um, things with their patients um, and and get them excited again about our field? Because I imagine if you're still practicing that way, you're not excited about showing up to work with your patients. Um, if you're practicing the way you do, and I know I do, it kind of gets you jazzed to figure out the next thing that you can do to help um, a person you're working with. Right, right. And that's a great mental exercise as well that I was doing as a student is like, you know, hey, here's where my patient is at right now. What's my end goal? But what's the next step I can take to get there? So one step at a time, yeah. what is my progression step by step look like? And what am I going to yeah. do if things start to go wrong? You know, where is... Yeah the next step back from there and build your progression and regression. As you mentioned too, having a firm understanding and knowledge base and exercise and patient management. Those are huge things. Yeah. Matt, for people who want to find out more about you, check you out on social media, all that stuff. Where can people find you at? Um, my hashtag on Instagram is at sports PT underscore fits. Um, you can Google my name, you'll find some stuff online as well, but that's the best place to find me. You can DM me with, uh, any kind of messages in the rehab world or just connect and appreciate the follows to my page, appreciate any kind of comments, uh, and, and posts, uh, anything that you want me to share on my page that may help you in the future. I'm happy to do that as well, or collaborate with you. So, uh, like I said, anything I can do to help young PTs or like-minded PTs, uh, in the sports medicine orthopedic world, I'd, I'd love to be able to help and get to know more and more people that do uh, things similar to the way I do things. Yeah, for sure. And we'll link to that below in case you missed uh, Matt's username there. 
Well, Matt, thank you again for your time. It's been great talking with you and sharing all this insight about the physical therapy world from stuff that we think, you know, maybe it could be done better, but also just kind of recognizing that, hey, you know, sometimes people don't know any better and physical therapy is physical therapy and we're doing our best to make this world a better place for everyone. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you for the opportunity to talk and it's uh, great chatting with you, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.